Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our weekly analysis of all things tech. We've got stories on AMD and Pensando, updated security products, a new IBM mainframe, and more IT news. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak. That'll get you 30% off all plans. Just use the promo code networkbreak at checkout, itpro.tv slash networkbreak. And stick around for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia about its new Edge network controller. This is a Kubernetes-based application that lets you configure switch hardware in Edge cloud locations and supports a NetOps environment for Edge deployments. All right, let's get into some news. Uh, first, chipmaker AMD is buying Pensando for $1.9 million. And if you're not familiar with Pensando, they're a startup in the SmartNIC or DPU space. They build silicon for servers that lets you offload networking, security, observability, and storage. They're competing with folks like NVIDIA, Intel, Netronome, Napatek, and others. Yeah, so Pensando was a DPU. They sort of came to market early. They're the same crew that brought ACI to Cisco and mm -hmm. previously done a couple of spin-out projects under John Chambers. So they're very good at getting out, getting a product built, and then coming back and selling it before, most often before it's finished, I think would be a fair way to say it. They'll start selling something that's incomplete um, and probably doesn't work all that well, and then but still you know, leverage their relationships with customers that they built back in the Cisco era. And they got a pretty good footprint down there. So I think the product looked pretty convincing. Um, and it really wasn't about the DPU, though. What they were really emphasizing was a software platform on top of it that it enabled them to build. And the early generations of the product said, we've got this software platform and it can do everything. And when you ask them questions like, but does it do anything? They said, no, it can do everything. <laughs> which was, <laughs> uh, which those of you who are around when Cisco ACI first was announced, that's a very familiar Discussion. Anyway, uh, sounds seems like they've convinced uh, AMD that they've got a product uh, that's worth buying. Previously, we saw, talked about them last week being on stage at uh, at Aruba's Aruba Atmosphere, conference. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yes. Um, and of course, weirdly, they must have known because HP is an investor in Pensando, a substantial yes. investor, as far yes. as I know. Mm -hmm. And um, they must have known that they were just about to close a deal with AMD, but still put them on stage for an extended period. So the logical conclusion here is that HP remains a believer in the pitch that in Pensando has made. Um, they have folded the Pensando DPU inside of a certain number of models of Switch, um, which is obviously a substantial financial commitment. Um, but selling the company to AMD means it's now outside of HP's bellywick. Do, do they take the money, Drew, or do they, you know, keep selling the product and promoting it through and maybe, you know, believe that it's the future? I mean, HPE made a lot of noise, I think, when Pensando first came out and, and HP came on board that it was going to be sort of critical to their strategy around providing mm. um, offload capabilities for your data center, for your edge. So I assume, I don't know if HP is going to take money and run, or but I, I think they are, they feel tied into Pensando. For AMD's part, it, I think it fills a gap in their portfolio. Uh, you know, Intel mm. has been doing a lot of work in the DPU space. NVIDIA certainly has been uh, evangelizing DPU space and bought Mellanox in part mm. for that. So. I think AMD looked at the market and said, yeah, we're behind here. We better buy somebody. Yeah, NVIDIA certainly took up DPUs. We haven't mentioned, you know, especially again this year, much more time was allocated to the discussion around how the Bluefield DPUs are going to be a key part of their AI platform. Uh, and obviously, Mellanox, before it was acquired by NVIDIA, was a key supplier to Azure and to Google for this same capability, and they were a key part of the competitive advantage. And of course, AWS has its own um, chipset in this space, 
where it's been talking little bits and pieces around the architecture that the AWS Nitro, right, um, and how they're using it to really, you know, scale up their 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 offerings by reducing power, increasing security, and things. We don't know too much about Nitro; they don't really talk about it. But I think AWS has basically proved the idea that a DPU has more value than just uh, network acceleration or storage acceleration. It can be much, much more. This idea of having a completely separated computer inside your computer that does firewalling, security, drives the base point, the BMC, mm-hmm. does remote control, becomes a trust anchor does all your storage offloading so it can do all the CRC checks and the validation, do connectivity checks, a whole range of stuff. And that leaves your server CPU, the general purpose CPU that is actually quite expensive compared to an ASIC in these things, uh, just to do server CPUing things, you know, right. run your containers. I mean, right. we've even seen Project Monterey from VMware say, we expect to be able to run the hypervisor off the NIC, off the DPU, mm-hmm. leaving all of the CPU cycles to just run VMs and containers. So. Right, and, and VMware is another one that made a lot of noise around wanting to be a partner with Pensando that Project Monterey would run on Pensando hardware, mm. yeah. Well, Project Monterey wants to run on everybody's DPUs. Of course, yes, not it's not, it was not exclusive, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. I would imagine that Intel is also in there talking about Project Monterey because, you know, obviously VMware's position means, and uh, they also become, but, uh, you know, the Pensando idea of putting their chipset inside of a switch doesn't resonate with me. We tried to do that. Oh, about 10 years ago, there was a phase where we were going to do, instead of doing software switching, they tried to develop a group of standards, 802. I think it's AG and AH, where we were going to send the bridging out of the server into the switch and then you know all that stuff would be done in the switching ASIC and not in the server, Nick. Mm-hmm. And that didn't take off. That died fairly quickly. Um, the idea that you're going to run a firewall inside of a switch has sort of been bouncing around, I want to say, for like 20 years, Drew. Like even if you go back to the oldest days of chassis-based switches where we had firewall blades and load balancer blades and, you know, we wanted to do it in the network and right. that really hasn't stuck. It sort of comes and goes. It, it's a fad thing that sort of seems to keep trying to get up because it seems like a good idea, but it never seems to last for very long before it just becomes, the you know, not viable somehow. Yeah, I think uh, VMware is, again, one of the companies pushing this model, not necessarily in a switch, but having this offload capacity in a server so that you can get distributed security for things like micro-segmentation, traffic inspection, and so on, mm-hmm. and have uh, a bunch of these different uh, security instances running in your servers and not having to do it in a separate appliance, having to do you know redirecting traffic out to some suite of security applications for processing. You do it as close to the workload as possible, should help you with performance. Uh, and then you need some kind of you know software overlay to control all those instances running and, and do policy and check and so on. But that's that's the model that VMware is, is promoting, and I think Pensando is mm. one of the companies saying yes, and we can help you do that with our hardware. Yeah, but so can Bluefield, so can yes. Intel's. You know, Intel's talked a lot about its DPU technology, although it's renamed it, says it's doing more than everybody else. I mean, all of the DPU makers are making rather bloviated claims right about now. Um, Pensando, a Pensando exec got fairly carried away with the Register, and the Register published an article that breathlessly said you know, better than AWS, which is, you know, mm. we don't actually know what AWS is doing with their Nitro tech these days. So right. making a claim like that is a bit, I can say anything I like because it can't be proved either way. Right. Uh, I had, right. And, you know, the AMD CEO said something else and I thought, look, well, that's in their interests to say something like that. It's hard to prove that it's better or not. And Pan Sound, I can't prove it because the customers who've got their products aren't speaking up about them. They're not out there saying that they've got them working successfully. They're all just doing them on the quiet. 
So it's very hard to prove whether the technology is great or not. Certainly the people I've spoken to on the quiet are less than pleasant, but that's, you know, about the product, but that's not necessarily a sign that it's not successful elsewhere in the industry. I mean, I would have to assume that AMD would have done a due diligence on Pensando's mm. basic capabilities before spending almost $2 billion on it, I would hope. Uh, yeah, $1.9 billion. I think, keep in mind here that they've made an ASIC, a custom ASIC, and they built a board, mm -hmm. and they've had to license an ARM cluster here. So this wasn't a cheap thing to do. So I right. sort of ascribe about a $300 million development to that, $300 million in, in dollars in you know, putting, they would have hired somebody. Pensando's not big enough to have done that internally. Right. They would have paid somebody else to develop this for them. And they've only got 300 employees and they claim that over 200 of them are software uh, employees mm. um, doing development work of their software platform. That would imply that they're somewhere out there, there's another team doing the silicon and that's not in-house. So they've outsourced that, um, which is normal, by the way. That's, you know, you go out and you say, I want something that does this, please design it for me. There's entire... Right companies in China and India that do that type of stuff and they know how to do all that sort of stuff for you. But they would have had to pay a high price for that. So my general assumption is 300 to 500 million for the chipset maybe and the first production runs to get them manufactured and built and, you know, to go through the cycle. And then they've had five years of sales, of operation, and say, let's say three years, two years of getting the product up and running and into a packaging you know, getting the, the initial software platform off the ground while the ASIC was being designed and manufactured. So then you've got three years of sales. So they've probably got another 300 million in operational costs. So I'd say they probably got a 3X, which is modest. Mm -hmm. Worst case, 2X, best case, four to five. But, you know, if they, if they got away under 500 million for doing that business and sold it for 1.9, that's a three to four X return. That's pretty good, but not huge, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, given the interest we're seeing in silicon, uh, I was surprised at the number, 2.2 2 billion. I thought it was mm. a little bit low, uh, but I guess I was mm. also surprised at how quickly Pensando got bought. So maybe it was speed over uh, cash. Yeah, well, I think NVIDIA's sort of proven out the idea here. Intel yeah. obviously has shown that it wants to be there. What we're also not seeing is the other competitors. Cisco is obviously one that should have been in this space. Broadcom. Uh, you would have expected that Broadcom would have been able to adapt its switching silicon into this. Uh, but so far we haven't seen any, and they are today one of the largest suppliers of Ethernet ASICs in the world, not just for switches, but also for NICs. Um, so there's other competitors here yet to emerge, or maybe they don't emerge. Cisco's got the VIC chip, which it has its UCS, so it has a smart NIC already. In principle, they could do something here, or they could take the Silicon One and create a fork of that as the forwarding engine and then strap some other things on. But I think Cisco's largely moved away from silicon design. Like to get the silicon one, it had to buy an Israeli company um, to get that chip design team back in-house as uh, to complement their existing technologies that are, they still do some silicon design in the WAN space. Mm -hmm. So mm, don't know if Cisco's going to do something. It is true that they'll be slow and late to market these days. They don't like to be ahead of the market. They right, like they'll follows, let the market but, prove itself out and then follow, yeah. Yeah, and then follow. I mean, if that means they have to develop and they come in, you know, three to five years too late, they know that most of their customers will also be three to five years too late and that's fine uh, for them. So I do sort of speculate about where does that come from, what are they going to do, you know, and is there anybody else to come out? If it's not Broadcom and Cisco, is there any other players? Could we see Qualcomm try and make a play in this space? Maybe, you know. Yeah, maybe. 
Uh, and just uh, another data point, uh, NVIDIA inquired, acquired Mellanox for $6.9 billion back in 2019. And of course, it's not an apples to apples comparison because uh, Mellanox was already an established company and they have more than one business besides SmartNex. They've also got Ethernet switching and others. So uh, it's uh, not quite apples to apples. Yes, Infiniband, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which yes. was immediately profitable for NVIDIA because they could immediately fold that into their existing AI platforms of the era. Um, and they also had a bus technology uh, in there as well, which was key to the AI. We haven't talked about it here, but there was a, a, a fabric technology that Mellanox was developing, which has now been folded into its AI platforms. And that is part of the NVIDIA uh, AI chipset technology. So Mellanox gave them a whole bunch of things. So a different, completely different yeah, buy. And different. Mellanox is working on a whole different scale with its Bluefield chips. They just, you know... And although I noticed that Pensando managed to get quotes from Oracle and Microsoft and, and various others, I noticed that the quotes are, uh, shall we say, normal. How's that? They Generic. don't really say. Hey? <laughs> Generic. <laughs> yes. Generic, yeah. Like it is It is just because you've got a quote from Oracle or some, you know, Microsoft um, doesn't mean that they're actually a supportive product. It just means that you're giving them a chance to get some free Right. Publicity. So, you know, and these companies have a policy of like, if you ask them for a quote, that generally they'll answer yes. So, these kind of quotes generally say words, but those words don't actually mean anything. They don't come out to an endorsement when you actually sit down and look at them and parse them out. So, yeah, it's just one of those like, you know, putting a sticker on a race car kind of thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you like to put your sticker on, our, on a right. race car? Yeah, it's of course we would. If it's, it's not going to cost yeah. us anything, yes, right, we'd exactly. love to get that free. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think it's good. I think it's good that AMD is there too. So Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, that seems to be a good set. Now, I guess the next question, Drew, is how many more DPUs do we need? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've got enough, but that's me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also good to see that we've now got hardware established, multiple suppliers. So now where before it was sort of heading towards the NVIDIA had a leading position and nobody was standing up, let's assume that Intel will be able to do something with their DP, their, you know, their DPU technology. Um, the question now then becomes what operating system runs on these NICs? Is it a, is it a shared operating system that we run on all of them? Like, mm -hmm. is it something like Sonic that we run on all of these NICs mm -hmm. and then apps come on top of those and then SDN controllers and then the SDN tools that programs all of those NICs, are they then going to be something like NVIDIA's approach would be to say, we have. A, a software platform like Pansando does right. that brings these NICs together into a unified, you should buy this from us Yes, and then add something to it. So do that. Does that then become an OEM where you go to NVIDIA, you buy their SDN platform with their NICs, let's say your Dell, and then you say, I want that NIC and it's going to run Sonic on the NIC and here's this SDN. And then you rebadge that platform, you know, in the same way that you use open source to become your DPU platform for your data center. My assumption is that the NIC is the toehold and then the software that you can run on top of it mm. is where these companies anticipate making most of the money. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way, well, the other way it could go is like Broadcom. Broadcom has a licensed piece of code that goes in the middle of every kernel driver and they say, you want to use our chips, you have to buy our blob and you have to use our blob under license. You can go and develop your own if you like, but we won't give you access to the advanced features of the right. chip. So there is a whole bunch of like there are model, you know other models, yeah, of other models that may emerge over time. It's just be interesting to see. But I guess what I'm looking for is now that we've got three DPU suppliers of sufficient scale and motivation to throw serious money at them, billions, like literally billions of dollars. Yep. yep. Um, 
you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Pluribus put their NOS onto the Bluefield NIC. And mm -hmm. you can now put that inside a server and now your Pluribus fabric, data center fabric, extends inside the server. That's the sort of thing that we'll see as time goes by. Yeah. So just to round this out, um, the Pensando team is going to join AMD's data center solutions group. And I guess I should say this is another feather in the cap for John Chambers, who was part of this Pensando team. Mm. All right, moving on, uh, Juniper Networks, they're partnering with a company called Synopsys to form a new separate company that's going to pursue silicon photonics, and silicon photonics uses photons instead of electrons to move uh, information and could result in faster chips that are more power efficient. So been following silicon photonics for a few years now. This, this is a really interesting dynamic in that silicon photonics is, of course, based on the idea that lasers can be built into the core switching ASICs and that this would reduce cost. Uh, particularly through reducing power. Right. So as the chips scale up and go to faster and faster speeds, they're generally getting smaller and smaller die sizes, but the chips are getting larger, so you end up with a net increase in power consumption. Uh, what we need is less power consumption overall for data centers. It's absolutely the key thing that drives the cost of a data center. Uh, as we flagged a couple of weeks ago, um, as electricity prices rise, you're probably going to see a stark, sharp rise in data center costs in-house, out-house, you know, off-prem, on-prem, whatever. Um, and they're going to be keeping an eye on how much power can we save by adopting new technologies. But silicon photonics is incredibly hard. You can't, it's not like a, getting a lasing material and then laying it into a substrate in a fabrication plant is incredibly difficult because you have to etch them and then apply and deposit these compounds at like, you know, several atoms in, in size. Right. Um, and so to date, although years of development has been in place, has not been emerging. And recently what I've been seeing is a discussion coming up and it's not fully formed, but there was an article last week from the next platform where they were interviewing Andrew Beckelstein over at Arista. And he was sort of flagging that, uh, to be honest, uh, that in his point of view, that silicon photonics may not be the way forward because he thinks that, um, the, the ways of using SFPs may actually work out better in the long run because if we can, they've got scale adoption, so they get manufactured at scale so that they're cheaper, but also because of the way that the lasers work on these ASICs and the way some of the solutions work, there might even be a 20 to 25% power saving at the component level because of the way SFPs work. So it's not a, it's not a given that silicon photonics is going to be the answer at this time to me. And maybe this is why Juniper decided to spin up a new company in mm. which it can have a bit of a share, but I guess it also puts some of that risk off its books if silicon photonics eventually do not pan out. Well, apparently Synopsys and Juniper actually have been collaborating together for a while. Right. Synopsys software tools are used to design ASICs. Juniper has been a Synopsys customer designing the ASICs, presumably things like the Trio and so forth. Um for its high-end routers. And so doing a joint venture with Synopsys makes sense. Maybe there's some shuffling. And Juniper did acquire a large number of patents as part of its 400 gig strategy. Mm -hmm. It wanted to have patents and to be able to make its own um, optics around 400 gig. But the telecoms seem to have slowed down. I just read some research recently saying that the telcos are actually slowing down their capital spend over the next two to three years. You could draw your own conclusions why, you know, financial uncertainty, there's a the war in Russia and Ukraine, and there's a lot of conflict going on globally, the fallout with China, you know, as China moves away and we, the Western world is struggling to sell uh, to, to China, China wants to do it on its own. Um, we'll also see inflation and so forth. So maybe there'll be a slowdown coming from the telcos, in which case 
um, Juniper needs to be able to sort of maybe hold that off. And then I guess the flip side here, Drew, is that Juniper's having a great time selling to enterprises right now. Right. Uh, now, while the big money is selling to telcos and to service providers and selling them, um, do they really want to be in the case of core technology innovation or do they want to be in the in the innovation part of software? And I think they're telling investors that we are a software company and then on the other hand, but we're into sil inventing <laughs> silicon photonics. It's kind of, there's a tension there. There so is. I mean, maybe, Juniper also yeah. does build its own custom silicon. It's got two different chipsets that it develops uh, for its hardware. So yeah, they definitely have a foot in this space. I, like I mentioned, I feel like they are mm. saying, you know, we think silicon photonics has potential. We don't necessarily want to carry that risk on our books. So we're founding this new company with a partner um, to make sure we don't miss that boat if it comes. But also, I guess they can jettison it if it doesn't work out. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know th this idea of making chips was a, something that everybody was going to do there for a little while, mm -hmm. and then I wonder if we're like seeing everybody sort of pull back. So Cisco got its Silicon One acquired the company, got Silicon One up off the ground after doing some reinvestment in that in that technology, but we haven't seen much since. Um, Innovium was acquired, you know, Xilinx was acquired by AMD for a forty nine billion dollar buyout. Uh, it, it, is it really the case that just chip makers will make chips? In which case, companies like Juniper and Cisco saying we're still making our own designing and making our own chips, does that continue to make sense as the world changes and starts to believe in AI and software and cloud as the future? Do you still want to be in straddling the old world and have a foot in the new world? Or do you just want to be all in with the new world? Yeah, there's a constant tension between merchant versus custom, and <laughs> that's where we are here for sure. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Cato Networks, they're adding device posture checks to their endpoint client for more robust control over network access. Cato competes in the SASE or secure access services edge market. Uh, the solution essentially requires the Cato client on the device, and then the client can look at things like your patch levels, the device type. Is this device uh, personal or is it corporate issued? Where is it located? And then based on those attributes, uh, administrators can set access policies, um, not only to applications, uh, but also within applications. So for example, if I'm using a home device with this client on it, uh, maybe I get read access to files, but not write access or download access, that kind of thing. Mm. In the ever going, everything is a security problem and all security problems will be folded into the SD-WAN, the campus or the data center. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> Uh, this is one of those. So by adding a client to the device, it can then signal to the SD-WAN network and specifically the cloud controller, it'll know something about the context of the edge node. So if there's an agent, you can start to detect things like, is this a corporate owned device? Is this a personally owned device? Right. What's the version of the operating system? Does it have certain security apps installed or not? Right. Um, and then you can start to say, oh, okay, well, this is a personal device. I won't let you download anything from the company, but you can upload or mm -hmm. you can use our messaging platform, but you can't do much more. Like there's a limit because you're out of hours or, you know, whatever your strategy exactly. you want to come in for. Yep. But if you're on a corporate device and the BYO, you know, the the MDM appliance is in place and the and your corporate apps are fully controlled, then you might want to have a much more unrestricted strategy for remote work because you're on the approved corporate device. Um, and so there's this diversity. And then this then becomes just part of the SASE strategy. So instead of going and buying somebody's third party, zero trust client edge, you know, blah, blah, blah. It just becomes part of your SD-WAN. Yeah. Or well, SASE, uh, as they like to call it. Yeah. SASE. So the enforcement part of this happens, you had the, the client will uh, establish a connection to a Cato pop where the Cato pop then does the actual enforcement because it's uh, essentially brokering your connections to cloud apps in particular. Mm -hmm. 
uh, to, to do this uh, level of enforcement. It is part of the broader zero trust network access strategy where security companies are offering solutions to organizations who are worried about, I think, remote users coming in from who knows where and needing to do a variety of things. You do need the granular control because sometimes you might just be, you know, in a pub at two o'clock in the morning, you know, <laughs> doing whatever and you need to just answer a message, but you've only got your personal device. Right. Okay. Well, you know, well, you, you, you wouldn't take your work device or maybe you're in a, in a country where you shouldn't be taking corporate devices, but you've still got a communication device, you know, things like that. Um, you took the briefing on this. Is this something that they actually owned or did they... Uh, borrow it from somebody else or rent it from somebody. So uh, they've developed their own client, which is the key part of this. But the I think the um, posture, the device posture aspect, they're licensing from a company called OpSWAT. Okay, yeah, Who I've never heard of, but that doesn't uh, matter. Anyway. Uh, yes, I haven't either, but that's okay. That's, I guess Cato trusts it. Uh, and I think this this device posture, I think you'll find it in other ZTNA solutions as well. And I think part of this, one of the ways they can actually make it happen is because they have that client footprint. That's essential for this, I think. Hmm. You know, you know, my view on this sort of thing, I believe that if you're going to rent a uh, part of your solution from somebody else that just put, put leads to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not generally a fan. I'm much more of a fan of the 40 net approach where everything's in house. Uh, there's very, very little that they license from a third party. And, uh, from what I've heard, people are generally okay with 40 net support. The challenge here is when you straddle a problem and they end up saying, we don't know how to fix this and we'll have to get in contact with somebody and you're left stuck with a not working solution and some third party is responsible and so forth. So generally that's why I'm less comfortable with the, you know, we'll rent it from someone else instead of developing it approach. Yeah. Although I will say that's pretty common, particularly in the, for companies that straddle sort of network and security where they'll have networking or firewall features, but they'll license, you know, uh, threat analytics from somebody or a threat uh, detection system or malware and so on. So I, I think it's fairly common, but uh, yeah, of course that does mean potential support well, issues. Yeah, it also has to, to be, be said this yeah, has to be said that security companies are heavily overpriced right now, so maybe waiting a while. <laughs> you know, people who are running security companies have got an inflated sense of their importance, and there is a case to be made that in a few years' time they might be selling for realistic valuations. So, yeah, possibly. All right. In other news, uh, speaking of Fortinet, uh, Fortinet has released version seven point two of its forty OS, and forty OS is the operating system that runs on the majority of its products, including its firewall. New features include an inline sandboxing capability to isolate and analyze files in near real time. And this is to speed up detection of and response to new and emerging malware. Yeah. So this is the uh, ongoing trend of the fact that in Fortinet, 40 OS is universal to nearly all of their appliances. So they don't have one operating system for this and another one for this and another team developing for this. It's pretty much all one thing. And there's some nice features to that. And there's some just small disadvantages. So when Fortinet talks about releasing a, a code release, that is actually a significant thing for them because it just has such a wide impact across the business. Right. Uh, but I think this trend of moving from detection to detect and prevent, so this inline sandboxing capability allows you to see a file crossing the firewall, drop it into a sandbox, analyze it close to real time, but block it before it gets through. Right. That's what we're talking about here. And that is the sign of a company that's maturing into the, what I think of as the next generation of security. You don't block and permit, you block, scan. And up until now, they've just gone detect and said, we think this is a problem, but let it in. What we're now saying is block, detect in near real time, and then drop it if it appears to be a problem. Right. The The issue with sandboxing is that it was, you know, a delayed response where it would be shunted to a sandbox, 
Uh, and then they do the analysis and maybe, you know, half an hour later, you'd find out, oh, we shouldn't have let that through. And now we have to go find mm -hmm. out if this landed somewhere and clean it up. And so trying to spot it earlier is, of course, good. Uh, there's always, of course, questions when you do anything in line, you get into performance uh, potential issues. You also get into uh, uh, false negatives and false positives. Yeah, so much of this is a problem, but yep. you know, this those, is a those step are standard in problems that have yeah. been with us forever. You can't just have blacklisting and you know and whitelisting allow this block that that would we're through that and you and you can't just have application firewalls which say I'm going to do some inspection so I know more about what what to permit and deny. Now it's a much more interactive process scan, and up until now, a lot of the deeper inspections have just been like we'll detect it and let you know if we found something wrong. Right. Moving to a much more active posture of blocking at source. So. Yeah. All right, uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. And there's a special offer for Netbreak, Network Break listeners. You can sign up and save 30% off all plans. Did you know that there are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles? You could become a CyberSec Pro with online training. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. And IT Pro TV has you covered from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. Engaging hosts present information in a talk show format. They're live every day and shoot studio and shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. And you can stream IT, IT Pro TV's courses live and on demand via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash network break. You can get 30% off all plans. Just use the promo code network break at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash network break. We thank itpro.tv for being a sponsor. Back to the news. IBM has announced the launch of the Z16 mainframe. The company touts it as ideal for real-time transaction processing for things like financial services, credit cards, healthcare, uh, fraud detection, and other use cases. Yeah, I'm not about to start digging into the details of the IBM mainframe and its features that matter. That's beyond my capabilities. But it was a bit of a learning moment for me, Drew, because I, I was sort of reading this and I was thinking like, wow, they're releasing a new mainframe and it's got AI capabilities and quantum safe and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it struck me just how much mainframes are actually an expression of long-term business value. If they weren't valuable to businesses, they wouldn't exist today. Sure. Right? Yep. They, they would have been obsoleted. Surely after 50 years, like these things have been, you know, supporting businesses for 50 to 60 years already. And, you know, they drove a whole range of trends, like on-premise data centers were built to be able to deploy mainframes because that was the only way that they could work. And, you know, ultimately the lack of flexibility of mainframes and the very high prices led to new markets of on-prem systems, PCs, PC servers, x86, you know, file sharing, print sharing, and then on into the data centers we have today. But if you'd look at a mainframe in the right way, and I know I've talked about this before where I call an off-prem cloud or a you know, an AWS is a mainframe. It's the same thing. Closed APIs, rigid vendor control, very diverse services. You can have any service you like as long as you buy it from them. And, you know, <laughs> flexibility comes from what you develop in software. It's all very familiar, but mainframes have survived the test of time, 50 to 60 years, and they're still out there delivering real business value. And uh, it's just a lesson to be thinking about, you know, will your public cloud be around in 50 years and what would it look like? Uh, it's an interesting question to run past yourself. Do you want to be doing business with AWS in 50 years or Azure or Google Cloud? Yes, yes. Uh, it, it, 
continues to surprise me how valuable mainframes are to IBM uh, and how they continue to innovate. So you mentioned QuantumSafe. They're positioning the Z16 as QuantumSafe. That is, they say they're using cryptographic techniques to prevent against potential decryption by quantum computers in the future. Uh, this is the first time I've ever heard that marketing. I wonder if we're going to hear mm. more about that in the future, but I don't know how you could, what you're doing now to prevent against quantum attacks in the future. But okay, it's it's, it's marketing. Yeah, it is, it is marketing in the sense, but... That you know, all those things that they're folding into the mainframe, like adding to it, so you could, and a lot of AI use cases are fairly limited or fairly trivial. You know, they make a big bloviation noise. You don't need this mystic hardware. Some of the stuff that NVIDIA announced is magical. It's like huge scale AI processing. But really, for a lot of businesses, they just want to analyze invoices and get some fairly fundamental insights. Maybe just a fairly standard AI, you know, hardware accelerator inside of a mainframe is all you need. Hmm. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. All right. Uh, speaking of IBM and mainframes, a group of investors has filed a lawsuit against the company alleging that IBM has repurposed billions of dollars in earnings from its mainframe business to other business units the, uh, that IBM has de designated as strategic, including cloud security, analytics, and mobile. The suit's alleging that IBM misclassified this revenue to give the impression to shareholders and analysts that it was meeting strategic goals outside the mainframe business. You know, Drew, I sort of read, sometimes when I read these things about shareholders getting nasty with each other, mm -hmm. and I, it really invokes the most cynical part of me, but basically there was a time when IBM was really running its business on financial engineering, that is manipulating things, reclassifying things as cloud, you know, and what we see today. So companies take a product and say, well, that's our cloud product. But, you know, six months ago, it was just an on-prem data center product. We just mm -hmm. called it a cloud, you know. Mm -hmm. And just because it's on-prem cloud doesn't mean that it's not part of our cloud revenue. And that's what the shareholders are alleging. They're alleging that certain products were classified into a specific category uh, and they were given advanced incentives. And in fact, basically, if you were at IBM and selling certain products, if you weren't selling these specific products, you basically weren't making any money. You didn't get commissions. Executives and salespeople were only bonused on these particular products, which shareholders were told will grow. And this then aligned the incentives against making profits generally in favor of this very narrow. It all just feels like rich people arguing pointlessly to me. What do you think? I think it goes back to this bind that IBM finds itself in, in that it's got a very profitable, very sustainable mainframe business, but Wall Street is demanding that it is uh, not that, that they want growth in other areas, cloud security and so on. And so IBM is sort of tying itself in pretzels, trying to deliver and essentially not. And so mm. according to this lawsuit anyway, it's been taking, uh, from 2015 to 2018, it was taking profits uh, from its mainframe business and saying, well, look, we did, act, this actually was in cloud or somewhere else. Um, and not only did that sort of present to shareholders that yes, we're growing in other areas, it also allowed executives uh, to boost their own bonuses. So curious to see how mm. this lawsuit plays out because it does sound like some financial manipulation may have been going on. Well, it's certainly true that IBM was using financial manipulation for a decade or so when Ginny Rometty was in the CEO role. Everybody was in an open, everybody discussed it. And uh, part of IBM's failure is they financially engineered the company so hard that the money went around in circles to make profits that there was actually wasn't making any money. And part, that's part of where IBM's challenge is today and why it ended up buying Red Hat to give itself a future. Right, um, right which, you know, we could have arguments about whether Red Hat will be the future of IBM or whether, you know, they, they've made some pretty big f mistakes with CentOS, for example, you know, end of lifing right. the free version of Red Hat. And now all of a sudden, nobody's using it in the cloud anymore because, yeah, it's just, let's go use Ubuntu kind of thing, you know. 
So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, IBM changes itself, but this is just sounds like a storm in a teacup to me. Well, we'll see how it plays out. I'll, I'll keep an eye on it as we go. Yeah. Um, we'll wrap up with our final story. Uh, an article in Foreign Affairs is arguing that Russian cyber operations against Ukraine have been far-reaching, intensive, and effective, which kind of contrasts some analysis that has labeled Russia's cyber offensive as paltry. And Greg, you pulled out this article because you found, uh, you think there's some things to comment about. Yeah, I think the challenge here is that I think a few times we've said, get ready for the cyber war. It's going to spill out into the public space. And then we've come back and noted that it hasn't spilled out into the public space. And this particular article is rather comprehensively looking at the fact that it's the cyber war is not missing. It's actually happening inside of Ukraine and to a lesser extent inside of Russia. And the, you know, we talked a bit about the CarSat from Viasat and how that was blocked. And that had a huge impact on Ukraine. Right. Apparently the first for several days of the war, they were severely impacted. They weren't able to respond because those, that satellite network was how the military communicated mm -hmm. until they were able to get around it. Uh, and what we do still see today, for example, is that SpaceX terminals, which have come to the rescue to a large extent for a, a significant part of the Ukraine military and the civilian population. Um, and those are now being jammed at times by Russians. So they don't seem to have enough equipment to jam SpaceX all the time or, or, the, or any of the other stuff. But what we're also seeing is that the Ukrainians are using their mobile phone network to track Russian soldiers as a cyber weapon. So Russian soldiers want to send messages to their loved ones, so they let their phones roam to the Ukrainian mobile phone network, which continues to let them to connect. And then they send a message. Those messages are captured by the Ukrainians and then tracked, and then they can also find often geolocate where soldiers are. And in some cases, they're even top tapping into voice conversations. Right. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the the jets flying over near to the Ukraine border. So the Western jets from the UK, from Finland, from Sweden, from France, from Germany, doing EWACs, they are actually capturing radio conversations from the Russian. But probably the bigger part has been the attacks from the cyber military against the Ukrainian telcos. They have been reporting extensive attacks against their infrastructure um, and defending themselves against it and keeping their routers up, keeping their control systems up has actually become a significant thing. Now that's both for the 5G, 4G networks and also for the routed networks, the IP backbones and so forth. And I suspect there's been a lot of help. So just because you haven't seen the cyber war, perhaps hitting the headlines in your country or in your area, doesn't mean it hasn't been happening, but so far it does appear to have been happening at a some significant level, but just within the Ukraine uh, theater of operations so far. I think what I was expecting was some kind of spectacular cyber operations offensive against Ukraine, like, you know, taking out the electrical grid across the electrical grids across the entire country. We didn't see anything like that. And this author supposes mm. that perhaps that was because not that Russia didn't have that capability, but because Russia assumed, you know, our troops are going to be in Kiev and other cities very quickly. And so we'll need that infrastructure. So let's not destroy it. Yeah, there was, there's certainly that, but I also think the Ukrainians have been, at war since 2014, like the Donbass was invaded in 2014. They've had plenty right. of time. <laughs> so we to need to respond. account for Ukraine's own internal, you know, cyber operations uh, as, as defense, as yeah. for countering these attacks is what you're saying. Yeah. Cyber preparedness, I think is the word that I've seen security people to use. Mm -hmm. they, they've been, they were invaded by Russia in 2014 in the Donbass and before that, even when Crimea was annexed and it was right. clear that there was going to be you know, a greater conflict coming. So they started to allocate funds. I suspected they're much more prepared than most people had thought of. Yes. And they're able to resist the attacks as a result. They've been prepared. Or if, if they haven't been under active attack for a number of years, which is entirely possible, and we just don't hear about it. 
but right. it, it, that is a possible line of discussion that you could take. There's also issues I sort of also expected spillover effects. And I, I guess we saw that a little bit with the COSAT attack, um, but I expected more things, you know, like malware spreading outside of the battlefield and hitting uh, unintended targets. And we haven't really seen that either as, as far as I know. Hmm. And also the fiber network around the country seems to have held up. It has, Apparently, yeah. I read one article saying that they deliberately deployed a wide range of ISPs. They have 5,000 registered ISPs in the country of which about 100 are really active and at scale. Mm -hmm. But that's diversity allowed them to resist because there's lots of different operational structures. It makes it hard for a cyber attacker to take down the whole country. They can take down a few, but they'll mm -hmm. bounce back, you know, that sort of resilience thing. But also the fact that the fiber appears to have been resisted attack. And so, you know, so many angles to this that's so interesting to consider in terms of hardening your own network. So if you're, you know, buying networks from people, very interesting stuff. All right, well, that does wrap up the news portion of our episode. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with sponsor Nokia. We're going to be talking about the new Edge network controller. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk with sponsor Nokia about the Edge network controller. This is a Kubernetes-based application that lets you configure switch hardware in Edge cloud locations and support a NetOps environment for Edge deployments. Our guest is Wim Hendricks. He is head of IP technology and architecture at Nokia. Uh, Wim, welcome to the podcast. And before we get into the Edge network controller, can you give us some context around what Nokia means by Edge cloud and the use cases driving it? Yeah, first of all, what we see is that uh, edge clouds on, are on the rise, right? So edge clouds, we classify them as small data center, uh, typically located uh, closer to the end user. Eh? So typically they are even less than a rack, right? And why are they popular? Uh, of course, there is the promise of 5G and all the application that uh, it enables with lower latency, uh, local data processing, uh, sometimes it's deployed for privacy and security and stuff like that. So there is various use cases that are uh, being enabled uh, of it. And of course, if you look to uh, what is happening in uh, the 5G uh, space, so a lot of these uh, applications are getting uh, cloudified. Uh, so like the radio, so you have CloudRun, VRAM, uh, ORAM, mm -hmm. you have the user plane functions, you have mobile edge computing that is coming onto the right. So there is various applications that are being uh, cloudified in a cloud native way, as well as you see uh, a plethora of enterprise solutions, uh, let's say enabled on those edge cloud locations for the reasons that I mentioned, lower latency, local data processing and uh, privacy and security reasons. Okay, so two things. One is the location. It's as close to the workload or the end user as possible, but also you're talking about a, a small deployment. We're not talking a lot of gear, a lot of racks. Indeed, and, and this is where we have been focused because we have seen that there is actually a gap in the market to address uh, a low footprint type of environment that enables uh, the networking side in a in a very low footprint uh, yeah, type of environment that is uh, suitable for or that is actually enabled for these uh, edge cloud locations. Okay, so then let's get into the, the Nokia Edge network controller. I, I mentioned it's an application. Can you give us more details? What is it that I can do with it? Yes, yeah, so the Edge network controller is actually controlling the external networking equipment attached to those edge clouds, right? So for example, uh, anything that you can do through the CLI onto a device, we uh, enable through that edge network controller. So you can also classify it as an SDN solution uh, that is sitting on the edge that controls the networking gear. So 
VLANs, IP subnets, EVPN constructs, even MPLS and stuff like that, all of these things that uh, we enable. What we essentially did is uh, these days, devices are driving towards a model-driven architecture, typically enabled through a Yang uh, model-driven framework. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. what we actually did is we uh, ensured that that all that configuration, but also the analytics, the metrics, the telemetry that those devices enable can be consumed uh, from that edge cloud. Uh, and basically, essentially what we did is we enabled that in a Kubernetes type of environment because we see that most of these cloud native applications that are built on the edge are built within a Kubernetes type of environment. Mm -hmm. So what basically the edge network controller does it actually extends Kubernetes with all of these networking constructs such that you can enable them in an SDN-based fashion. So what I'm thinking of here is that I've got a Kubernetes deployment, right? And that's very popular within the edge because it allows you to scale across multiple computers and apps run in containers and you have containers with different things in them. But Kubernetes doesn't handle networking well either within itself where you might want to add, you know, people are always coming up with new ways to network in Kubernetes. Um, but certainly in terms of unifying the Kubernetes networking and how it reaches the outside world. So you still need to configure VLANs. You still need to configure IP routing and subnets and uh, access lists and segment micro segmentation. So this is an app that sits as a CNI plugin inside of Kubernetes that does the Kubernetes networking as well as the physical networking. Is that right? Uh, we don't do the CNI side. So what we uh, what you see in Kubernetes is uh, typically you have apps and they do one thing very well, right? Mm -hmm. We do believe that the CNI space is a crowded market, right? And mm -hmm. we want to stay away from that. Where we see a gap today in this edge cloud is actually the control over the external networking, as you said, uh, Greg, right? So right, right. what the edge network controller actually does is ensures that now, through the Kubernetes uh, ecosystem, we can also configure yeah. and get control over the external networks that actually connect those clouds uh, to the rest of the world. Right. So if That's I'm doing configuration commands into kubectl or Helm, I'm now able to send configuration, physical network configuration directly to the Nokia Edge Network Controller to match up. So kubectl might say, you know, this container gets this IP address, and then you're saying, hang on, that IP address doesn't exist. I need a VLAN and I need an IP routing and, and so forth for that. Yeah, indeed. And we do all of that uh, through the uh, Kubernetes native uh, constructs uh, rather mm. than trying to reinvent the wheel. So uh, indeed, so exactly as you said. Yeah. Right. So it finishes off that last piece. Kubernetes just assumes that the world stops where the Kubernetes ends. And, and in your case, you're doing it across multiple flavors of Kubernetes. So you're doing, there's a Nokia container services distribution, there's a native Kubernetes, there's Anthos and there's OpenShift. So this tool could bring together a, a single way to configure your physical network, especially at the edge, right? So factories, mining, and you've got these little data centers everywhere doing their things and you've got three, four, five switches there and you want to have a way to bring the Kubernetes container networking together with the physical. 100%, yeah. And that's exactly what uh, what the objective of the edge network controller is, to actually match the networking, which today has always been a separate thing. Eh? So, and see, networking is still special and remains special. <laughs> and But the edge <laughs> network controller brings that speciality inside of Kubernetes, right? Right, yeah, and yeah. 
the other important aspect is it's you can still segment and, and control who has access over which parameters. It's not because we brought it into Kubernetes now. It's only right. the Kubernetes people that can use it. You can hmm. also still, from an RPAC point of view, say, okay, this person uh, with this authentication has access to these constructs and this person with this uh, uh, yeah, profile yeah. can have access to these yeah, constructs. Yeah, I, I often say to people that Kubernetes is an incomplete solution because it doesn't do networking, it doesn't do storage, and it doesn't do server management. It just assumes some, or backups, right? Which are the four key things that you need, right? And somewhere along the line, you are going to have to buy a tool that does those four things. Now that might be, you know, ILO, DRAC management for the server side. If, that, if you're going to have storage, you'll go and buy some sort of storage engine. And this is the same for networking. Indeed, yeah. And that's what we are, either the objective of the Edge Network Controller or its goal and its mission in life is to be the best in class to manage the external networking gear that is attached to those edge cloud uh, locations and manage them in a full declarative and what we call mm -hmm. cloud native uh, with true uh, cloud native operations uh, in mind. Okay, so I get that I can log into this application and use it to manage physical networking gear at this edge location, but why why put it on Kubernetes when that's you know a lot of network engineers aren't even that familiar with Kubernetes? Yeah, so first of all, I think I, I mentioned that already before. Our network is special and we always build our own tools, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look to these edge locations, as we mentioned, footprint is extremely important. If a cost price footprint, uh, it's, it's, it's an extreme important parameter that, uh, that is, is there on those edge locations. Now, you can do basically two things. Either you can say, I build something completely different to actually manage the networking and build it alongside uh, of that Kubernetes environment. Mm -hmm. But you have to take care of many, many, many different things. And what you see typically is that the footprint that you require to enable uh, all the aspects of managing networking to its full glory is pretty substantial, right? And what you see is that the footprint doesn't is not sometimes allowed to, to be able to do that. So what we did is said, okay, no, let's do the other way around. Let's endorse Kubernetes and enable it with those networking parameters in order to actually reduce the footprint of that uh, uh, deployment. To give you a bit of context, the Edge Network Controller consumes less than a virtual CPU. Huh. That's the amount of horsepower that we are talking about, right? And so that is very attractive because now you don't need three servers or, or a bunch of, of uh, virtual CPUs to right. manage that application. You can do that with a very low footprint. And this is a key, let's say, selling point for the edge network controller as we see uh, in the market. So I'm, I'm hearing a couple of things. One is I'm not requiring customers in a space or power constrained location to bring in an extra server or an appliance. I'm running on infrastructure that they've already got. And two, I'm not taking up a lot of that infrastructure. So I'm not take, stealing away resources from you know, application uh, processing and storage and so on because you've, you've made such a lightweight uh, application. Indeed, yeah. And, and that's why we have endorsed Kubernetes, right? But as I said, networking is still special. So the edge network <laughs> controller is that speciality that that uh, that we still uh, bring to the table. Now, also important is another aspect that is very important within the Kubernetes ecosystem is we leverage now all the tooling, right? So 
for example, you want to control, uh, as I was mentioning before, who has access to what, right? So right. we use the tooling inside of Kubernetes for that. You want to uh, do compliance management. I say, okay, if I configure something, these are the parameters we always have to have, or this is the naming convention we want to have and stuff like that. You get that out of the box, right? Uh, we want to enable GitOps uh, as our uh, operation uh, tool frame that we are using uh, within the, the, the system. We enable that out of the box. So the other big benefit that we see by leveraging the Kubernetes uh, framework is using that whole ecosystem that is being developed for various uh, purposes and by various people. And that is another, I believe in certain markets, a very nice attribute for our customers because the cloud native operations that they are using for the, their application can now also be leveraged for the networking. Got it. So the networking team can get on board with, if you've got a CI CD initiative, uh, kind of DevOps or NetOps initiative, the networking team can now get into that pipeline essentially because you're all working from the same tool set. Is that the idea? Correct. Yeah. So for example, I, we have, I, there was a podcast on container lab. So it's an initiative that we have took uh, as well. So for example, if you say, okay, I have a bunch of network configuration that I want to actually apply onto the system. I run it through, let's say what we call a digital twin. Right? So I think of container lab as the networking digital twin. Yeah. You do your validation, you run your CICD pipeline uh, upon it. And then you basically, uh, once you see that all the test results that you get back from it are okay, you apply then the necessary uh, configuration snippets uh, onto the network through the uh, edge network controller. So all of that tooling that we just talked about is there. And we just enable our networking equipment to be part of that uh, complete ecosystem. And in terms of the networking equipment you work with, is it Nokia gear, the SR Linux, or do you work with third-party uh, equipment as well? So today we support both SROS and SR Linux, right? So which are, uh, if you, for people familiar with those systems, are very different Yang-based uh, modeling. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as such, I, what we did in, in essence is we brought Yang-based managed devices in the Kubernetes uh, framework, right? Now, we have not released yet third party, but we have tested already internally and we uh, have the plans to actually also support third party hardware uh, going forward uh, with the Edge Network Controller product. Okay, so out of the gate, I'm starting with Nokia uh, switches and routers, but you've got uh, third party gear on your roadmap. Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, and can I manage multiple Edge Network controllers from a single location, i.e. sort of a controller of controllers, or if I'm do I have to sort of log into individual locations to go and do the networking I need to do through Edge Network Controller? So the Edge Network Controller fits into a bigger, uh, let's say, solution within the Nokia portfolio. So in Mobile World Congress, we also launched our adaptive cloud networking. In that adaptive cloud networking, you see a network orchestration component, mm -hmm. which takes care of managing those multiple edge locations and managing them through a single pane of glass and, and manage that also through the same paradigm as we have done in the edge network controller using uh, leveraging Kubernetes to a full extent uh, for its uh, declarative uh, uh, way of working, but also because of then the ecosystem that is surrounding it for various uh, operational tooling. 
Okay, so just one more question before we wrap. We talked about edge network controller in regards to configuration. What about uh, visibility or telemetry? Is there uh, something you can do there as well for these network devices at the edge? Yeah, also that is covered with the edge network controller. So we enable uh, all the telemetry uh, configuration or the telemetry state that is enabled on the network devices. Uh, so as a Linux, as OS. The applications or the edge network controller uh, uses that data to do local event processing and then ships it uh, to central location for further data processing, which can be used for AI, ML, machine learning type of technologies or for uh, further analytics. So also it's not only configuration, but it's also the assurance and the visibility and the observability that we cover with the edge network controller. Well, if we've whetted your appetite to learn more about Edge Network Controller, just head over to Nokia.com and search for Edge Network Controller. We'll also have URLs in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thank you, Wim, for joining us, and thanks, Nokia, for being a sponsor. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, listen to us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.